Hey everybody, welcome back to Apex Mind. Adam here with you as always. And on this week's episode, I am very pleased to welcome to the show uh, a man who has over 20 years experience uh, developing and supporting people in various businesses and 12 of those years working in different L&D roles, even running his own business. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt Smith. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. I, I know we've uh, we've been connected for a while online and, uh, you know, we've had some interesting exchanges and sometimes even seeing things from different perspectives. And as as I've gotten to know you a little bit more, I feel like we have very similar perspectives in some ways, but, um, you know, I think we're both sometimes that contrarian type that likes to challenge each other. And um, I think that's always a fun, fun way to do things. So you have worked in uh, former, uh, you know, more L&D focused roles for over 12 years, both working for other companies and yourself. Um, can you give a little bit of background to anyone in the audience who's unfamiliar with who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, did a lot of things before L&D, but then my L&D career started um, where basically I was moving um, out of a business and my boss said, don't leave, become a trainer. So I said, sure, why not? And I uh, kind of joined the L&D team and, and started doing face-to-face -face training and then moved into designing training programs. And then from there, yeah, I've done uh, various roles in different businesses in consulting organizations, worked as a contractor, kind of embedded in projects, um, started a business called Pure Learning, which is a digital learning agency here in Australia and um, ran that for about five years. And uh, at the moment, I mostly work solo uh, as an advisor to businesses that work in the L&D space, like ed tech companies or learning agencies, uh, as well as working with learning and development teams and learning and development managers too for um, any initiatives they're working on. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a variety of things you've done. Um, something I want to find out about first is you know, you've been an employee of companies, you've ran your own business, and now you're operating in more of a solo capacity. You know, for anyone who's maybe debating moving between any of those spaces, what are some differences or similarities that you've noticed between those three different paths that you've had? Yeah, I think, you know, the the differences can, can also be the similarities, um, kind of the constant throughout. So, when you are running your own business or you're kind of you know working freelance or solo you do have to be a lot more proactive you do have to get a lot better at decision making you do have to get a lot better at influencing you have to find work um, you have to do all those things but you know i think the reason why a lot of us don't do that in internal roles is because we have so much kind of buffer around us and so many other things protecting us from doing that what i've found personally is if you act the same way across any of those kind of types of employment or um, or work is that you can get better results even internally. And some of the best kind of L&D managers or practitioners that I've worked with who work as an inter an internal team, um, they have that mindset. You know, they have that agency. They have that ability to get things done and they don't get blocked so easily. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think there's a really interesting um, constant that you can have, a mindset that you can have um, whether you're internal or external. Yeah, that's a good call out. You know, there's so much talk these days about being an entrepreneur or, you know, leaving the corporate world. And, and I think it's romanticized by a lot of people, but, you know, really, if you're working within a company, you can have so much more success if you're what's called an entrepreneur, right? You, you operate entrepreneurially within the business. Um, what skill sets did you find either when you were working for companies or now that, you know, help you to have more impact and to maybe influence a little bit beyond just your title or your direct reports? Yeah, I think it is um, mostly a mindset thing and kind of uh, connected to that is confidence as well. Um, so it, it is hard, especially the way a lot of businesses are structured. You know, they're very hierarchical. There's certain people that, you know, certain things sit with. And in some cultures, you know, you're not able to you speak to people, certain people, um, people are kind of protected or there's gatekeeping. But I think if you have that mindset where the way I approach things or kind of just talk about, about me um, and my personal experience, the way I approach things is everyone's equal. You know, the, the person who just started yesterday in the most junior role in the organization isn't any less important than the CEO who runs the business and earns a lot more money um, as, a, as a person. So in the organization, we have an org chart and then we put people at the top and say, this person's more important, their time's more precious. Uh, I think if you just 
realize that everyone is working towards the same mission. You're working towards the same goals. You're all there to help each other. And just having that attitude. And I realize that there's there's some cultures and I've worked with some of these companies where it's it's toxic and it is very much, you know, you can't speak to this person, you can't get things done. And I realize there's there's barriers there, but I think it's not as bad all over as some people would say. It's very easy to kind of sit back and not try and affect change in your organization and kind of make excuses based on um, some of these things. But I think the first thing you need to do is just realize that everyone's equal. Everyone is participating towards this, this mission. We can all work together and your voice is just as important as someone else's. So that's probably the main thing that's hard to do uh, on a confidence side because some people grow up and they've been told, you know, their entire life that maybe, you know, they're not worthwhile or they feel worthless or they just have that self-doubt or imposter syndrome or they've had years of discrimination or, you know, a bigotry towards them and things like that. So I realize there's, there's all those um, things that, that contribute to this and it's, and it's tough. And I think there's a lot we can do inside organizations to help with that as well. But for me, it's not any particular skill. It is more a case of just being able to do that. And sometimes we're blocked by kind of our own emotions or our own previous experiences. And sometimes it's, it's systemic and something that we have to change in an organization uh, as well. But yeah, I, for me, I think it's, it's really just having that attitude and, and just developing that mindset. And once you do that, then the skills will follow. Yeah, agreed. I, I think the confidence is huge. And, and I like that you point out that confidence can maybe come easier to certain people than others. And, and some people, it may be more of a struggle for them to um, grow that confidence to speak up to a C-suite executive or somebody above that. Um, and, and then within a lot of organizations, training often comes top down, right? It's identified by senior leaders, by directors on up, and then it's it's kind of dictated to the training team and then forced upon the frontline employees. And it sounds like you've taken an approach where you value that frontline employer, whoever they are, so that you can find out what their needs are and solve them. Is that, am I making a good assumption there? Uh, yeah. Well, I think that, I think, I think you got to look at both, you know, you got to look at what is, what is the business trying to do? What, what are the risks they're facing? What are the challenges they have? What are their goals? And then you also need to understand what what is it that the people who are actually doing the work actually need as well. So it's it's a balance between those two. I think you can become very unbalanced if you just focus on one and not the other. Definitely top-down training with no input from the audience and no understanding of what actually happens in the real world on the job is just terrible. You know, it's it's not going to be relevant. It's going to be very disengaging and boring. Um, and it's most likely going to waste people's time. But then on the other hand, you can't just blindly kind of train what everyone else wants as well. So you've got to look at both of those things because um, otherwise you, you know, you're just going to be the slave to someone else's whims. What you really need to do if you're in L and D is actually help every party understand each other's needs. And I think this kind of comes back to like one of those skills you were asking about before is if you have this mindset of we're all in this together, we're all working together, sometimes it can't feel like that in an organization or, or if you've got a client and you're a freelancer, you can feel like you're butting heads, but you're working towards the same thing. You just have a dif difference of opinion or different requirements. So it's about common ground is and where those differences are and what the gaps are. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to word it is you, you definitely need to take both sides. I, I see too often where it is top down, but you don't want to ignore the needs of the senior leaders because they do get that larger picture. And they're also the ones that are paying for the initiative too. So um, I, I think it is seeing both sides. You also mentioned that you do business with uh, a lot of ed tech companies and the L&D space is definitely not one that's shortage of technology vendors. And sometimes it feels like um, there are so many vendors out there that are just recreating the wheel and maybe tweaking a couple things and acting like it's this revolutionary new software or approach. So what, what are you doing to ensure that um, the people that you work with, the companies that you work with are actually driving real impact and real change and not just, uh, you know, kind of recreating the wheel, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think there's, 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 Three different things I would think about. One is invention, so creating something just brand new that hasn't existed. Then there's innovation, which is 
is, is transforming or changing something that already exists or combining things. Um, then there is also just doing a really good job. And I think the doing a really good job part is left out of a lot of conversations. So you could build, uh, you could build an e-learning authoring tool or a learning management system that has a lot of the same functionality as existing technology that's out there, but you could make it so much more usable, so much faster. You could just do a really good job of it and that would be a great product. So that kind of gets left out a fair bit. I think everyone's always looking for disruption and they're looking for innovation, um, but we're not valuing doing a good job um, at the start. And there's, there's so many... Uh, pieces of technology and tools out there that are striving for that innovation, but they just don't get the basics right. And they're pretty unusable. And it doesn't matter how good the innovation is or what brand new thing they've come up with. If it's not usable or if it's not practical and it doesn't relate to the way that people actually learn or the way that businesses work, then that's, that's going to be no good as well. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the other thing to consider. There is a lot of wheel reinvention happening. Um, what I worry more about is rebranding the wheel which is basically just having the same old thing and then just rebranding it and just saying this is brand new and giving it a new name and it just makes it incredibly confusing for everyone um you know technology companies are coming out with new terms for their product to differentiate themselves from other other products that are exactly the same and it just makes it very confusing for um, buyers it's very hard for them to make an educated um you know, decision based on that. It's also very hard for new people coming into the industry too. There's so many new terms and things to to learn and it's confusing because they don't realize this these seven different terms actually mean the same thing. It's just a rebranding of something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, usability is huge. You know, I, I always think about what Apple did in the smartphone market because they didn't invent that market. I mean, Home Pilots and, and Windows were, were doing smartphones before that with downloadable apps. And all really Apple did was make an easy user interface. And that's why it was so revolutionary at that time. Um, you know, people can argue what they want of what's progressed over the years, but certainly when it came out, it definitely changed up that market and the LMS market. Well, let's let, there's two sides to this, right? There's the LMS market and there's also authoring tools and I'm not going to call out any specific vendors. But with authoring tools, there's really certain big ones that are used for a lot of e-learning development. And then LMS, I mean, there's probably more LMSs out there than, than you could name. But the challenge, I think, on both of those fronts is they're not traditionally, they're not as user-friendly as they could be. And they, they're very proprietary and they don't necessarily always serve the user's interest. So what are your thoughts around maybe the, the traditional ways of doing those versus maybe some of the newer vendors that might be coming in with more nimble, nimble agile products that they offer. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're so driven by compliance, you know, learning management exist, systems exist uh, because of compliance and issues of banking a long time ago. And it, it's driven a lot. By that and and to an extension so is the e-learning authoring tools what else drives this market is customers and so you'll notice that you know every new e-learning authoring tool that comes out it has some of the same terrible functionality that um that shouldn't be in my opinion in e-learning authoring tools like flip card interactions mm-hmm. and um things like that 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 are just there like that don't have very many relevant simulation kind of, they're not very applicable to creating a real life simulation of an on the, on the job task. And I think that's what you should be doing with a lot of training. And I include e-learning uh, in, in the bucket of training. Um, so there's this kind of legacy of, well, it's an e-learning tool, so it has to have that. Because when we go to this sales meeting, the the buyer will say, well, how come you don't have flip card interactions? But this other tool does, or oh, I really like these matching activities. Why don't you have that there? So they kind of have this pressure where they have to tick off the boxes of all these other things. And I mean, I know that from having a, a digital learning business going and, and talking about um, pitching to clients and saying, you know, this is what the solution will look like. And 
you know, it'll be something that is much more like simulating real life. And they'll say, oh, but where's the quizzes? Or can't we just add in some tabbed interactions here to make it more engaging? Because they think, well, they've been told for years and years that e-learning has to have these components. It has to have a quiz at the end. It has to have some clicky interactions to make it, you know, quote unquote, engaging. Um, and it's just kind of these old stories that have been told and not really thinking about kind of what's the outcome we're trying to achieve and what's going to be best for the participants. So that is a huge barrier as well to learning management systems, to any, any type of ed tech. There's this legacy of like, this is what workplace training needs to be. This is what e-learning needs to be. So I think that is a barrier for anyone starting a new tool. Um, there's probably a lot of pressure they get. I'm sure they get a lot of customer feedback. I'm sure when they walk away from an unsuccessful sales bid and they get this feedback saying, well, you, you missed these six things that Storyline has, they, they go back to their product team and say, we need to build it. I know it's not in our roadmap, but we're losing sales and we need sales. Otherwise, we're going to get shut down. So I think that is, a, is, is something that we just need to work towards. I think having people who are a bit more... Um, who are making more noise in the industry, I think publicly is good, but I think ultimately it has to come from the the buyers, the buyers being a little bit more focused, not so much on buying a tool based on a checklist of items, but more in terms of, hey, what can we do with this? What is the potential for this? What different things could we do? I think there's a lot of um, hoping innovation comes from outside of the L&D departments, whereas the innovation should be coming from within the L&D departments. And that will drive technology. That will drive more businesses. There's so many cool tools out there that aren't specifically created for L&D. A lot of that can be brought into L&D, but I think it's not viable for a startup to start doing that because if they're going to customers and the customers are just asking for the same old boring, tired things, well, they're they're not going to make sales. So it's not viable for them. Yeah. I, I know that you and I have discussed this before and, and maybe we can explore this in a little bit more detail now, but those perceptions are real. And, and before we talk about trying to overcome those perceptions, you know, let, let's talk about where that comes from, because really it, it, it comes from our view of what education is. We have a view of our education system. And I don't really want to talk about childhood education because that's my, not my area of specialty, but I do think there are issues there. And then that now kind of feeds into how we do adult education, which really training is very education-based, whether it should be or not. I'd argue it probably shouldn't be as much as it is, but you know, th there are there are these systemic things where people think that you have to learn X, Y, and Z through your quizzes and your flip cards and information being passed. Whereas a lot of times in the modern world, it seems as if I just need to know how to do something and then go do it, especially for like the easier kinds of tasks that a lot of information jobs are. Do you, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think it's what's hard about this conversation is um, the lack of nuance. So there seems to be, you know, various factions or sides in in our industry where it's you know resources not courses it's all um performance support it's all completely away from you know traditional l and d and then you've got some people who are very you know pro kind of learning and um very pro training it's it's all relevant it depends on the context it depends on the business it depends on the people you're training i need someone to walk through this i need to and when I say training, I don't mean presentations. I mean training. Training is getting involved, actually practicing, being assessed, all that sort of stuff. So that is very valuable. I want to fly in planes that have trained pilots. I want to go to a hospital and be looked after by a doctor who's been trained. So training is really, really important. There's, and then there's so many other things where we've just done information dumps or e-learning courses or you know half-day presentations for things that didn't need to exist. Um, in terms of training. So it could be a checklist. It could be a job aid. It could be a conversation. It could be a website that people can go to. And so I think for me, the most important part of this conversation is, is about skills. And I think it, it hardly ever gets brought up in this way that we just need to get better at doing the things that are the basics of instructional design and learning and development, understanding constraints, understanding um, what the different training modalities are, 
understanding how we meet different needs, understanding the, the best way of teaching someone or helping someone learn something in a certain uh, situation. We need to be very good at that analysis. We need to be very good at being able to assess skills. We need to be very good at being able to determine skills and what requirements are. And instead, you know, the conversations become very black and white about this is the way, you know, everything should be performance support. Everything should be e-learning. Everything should be whatever. Um, and it's, it's, that's not how the real world works. And even with schooling, you know, I was very, I hated school, very anti-schooling. Um, since having kids who have been in school for many years now, um, I can see more nuance in, I can see some of the benefits of schooling. I can see, I can see a lot of things they could do better. Um, but I understand a lot more why things are the way they are. And what's important um, to me, and this is why, you know, we, we conversation you, you alluded to previously, and I get into many of these conversations is we need to be very precise around what our criticisms are. And we need to be very open to discussing the nuances and the changing context um, of, of business. If we just kind of come in and roll out the same old solution all the time, we're just not going to be useful to, to the businesses that we're serving or the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, you're right in saying that there is nuance and it all depends on the specific situation and there is no one size fits all solution. Um, you know, I, I know that sometimes, you know, a lot of people can fit into their camps and, and whether that's because the nuance of specific situations is lost online sometimes and, and here on this podcast, you and I can have a much more in-depth conversation or I wonder if some folks are going to be very much in line with here is the solution because that's what financially benefits them. They offer e-learning. So they're going to say that e-learning is a solution or someone offers performance support. Maybe I offer courses or books in performance support. Well, now I'm going to say that's the solution. In reality, I think regardless of whatever training you do, I think resources have to accompany it every time. And I think that gets missed a lot, at least in the companies I've worked for, you know, from fortune 20 really large corporations all the way down to startups. A lot of times the resources that people use while doing the job are an afterthought and training gets seen as this magic wand that will just make people perfect after they've gone through it. Is, is that something you've seen as well? Yes. Yeah. I mean, broadly, yes. Yes. I think, you know, there are situations where you just like, you, you, you don't have, you can't access resources at the point in need and things like that, where you, you will definitely need to have a certain level of proficiency and, and be able to be an expert in what you're doing because it's, it's fast paced or it's dangerous, or you just don't have access to resources. You've got to think quick. Um, but yes, I mean, broadly having access to resources is, you know, always a very good strategy. I think something that has kind of fallen out of favor in a lot of organizations, unfortunately, is knowledge management. And I think that is just a really key thing um, that we should be thinking about and we should be working closely with knowledge management teams or or leading the knowledge management initiatives if there isn't one in our organizations, uh, because it is, it is so important to create those resources and have access to that information. And it can save a lot of time and it can also identify a lot of gaps when you are forced to you know, write things about your own processes or, or how things work, you start to realize, you know, what the nuances are of that particular task. And that helps you better understand your job too. So um, I definitely think that that's something that should be talked about more. What I, what I worry about is when it just becomes, it sways too much. And I think another reason why people just get, get focused on their one thing. Um, yes, definitely. There's some people that they're, they're just trying to push what they're selling. Also, too, I think some people feel really passionate about things that do need to change, and they, through years and years and years of trying to fight, you know, a um, fight against what they they don't like, all that fighting and all that kind of con concerted effort into kind of pushing against something away from kind of what they've been pushing for all this time, and text that um, their message doesn't apply. Yeah, yeah, I I, I get that, um, and. You, you gave some good examples there. I mean, there's the pilot that has to have a certain base level of knowledge that regardless of whatever instruments or things they have in their cockpit, they have to have a base level of knowledge. A surgeon has to have a base level of knowledge. Someone who's out in the field doing work 
can't always reference a knowledge base or uh, a job aid. Um, so it obviously depends on the context. And, and I think certain people, like even I've been guilty of this, of pushing more of the uh, performance support or knowledge resources over training. Um, you know, we're all a little biased maybe towards the types of people we support and the types of businesses we support. So it's, it's good to have that balanced view and the context of the situation that you're dealing with. Um, I want to shift a bit. So we've all seen over the last few years, a lot of changes, right? There, there was the pandemic, there was the shutdowns, there was businesses moving to virtual. Now we're starting to see a huge employee engagement problem with um, people leaving jobs and people being disengaged with their work, all the different terms that we're hearing around that. Um, in, in the work you're doing, working with different businesses, what have you seen and what have you been able to be successful at adapting to this rapidly changing landscape in the workplace? It's a really interesting question. I think what I've seen uh, over the last couple of years with remote work, um, kind of specifically, it it exposes a lot of um, a lot of issues in management and management styles and the way businesses are structured. And if you're a bad manager, if you're not if you're not great, and I'm not talking about like someone who's mean and cruel. I'm just talking about someone who's just not not very good at people management, maybe a bit disorganized or maybe not very um, attuned to their team, um, lots of different things. It's it's easy if you're all in the same building for a lot of that to be ignored or compensated for. When you, I think a really good manager can manage people if they're 20,000 miles away or or two, two feet away. Um, so I think that is what has what has been exposed in a lot of places. And I'm not just talking from kind of my own experience working with businesses, but but also just from friends and talking to people who have moved from working in an office to having to work remote. Where I live was, was the most locked down place on the planet, I think. Um, so we were locked down for, you know, over 200 days. And so people, a lot of people just had to work. Even if the business didn't want people to work from home, they had to work from home. It was all about organization, collaboration, communication. And I think that's very interesting because I know, I see how much businesses spend on leadership training and how much they continue to spend on leadership training. And uh, there's still this giant disconnect to actually how to manage people um, correctly and how to manage a team. It's not just about managing the people, it's about managing the workload as well. So I th so for me, that, that's that been a really big thing that's popped up. And that's something that is very hard. That to me is, is something that is a bit of a training need. Um, it's also, obviously, a an issue with the way we're promoting people, with the way we're hiring managers and things like that, what we're looking for when we hire people managers, how we structure teams to maybe promote, you know, the highest performer as a people manager. There's lots of different things in there. But there is also a piece in there about people really understanding what what it is to manage a team and what it is to manage not just the people but the work side of things. And some managers are really good at managing the people side but not the work some people are really good at managing the work side. You've got to be good at all those things. And if you are managing a remote team, especially spread out across different time zones, uh, that can be you know, eye-opening to how, how many gaps you have. Whereas before, you could just turn around in your seat and just have a chat to someone and fix up something pretty quickly. You need to be a lot better at giving a really good brief, clearly communicating goals and intentions, managing the work efficiently, and managing the workflow as well. I like those three things you gave at the front of that. So organization, collaboration, communication. And yeah, it is amazing how leadership is this constant training need. And and it is. I mean, it's not just a training need because there's a demand for trainings. It's There's an actual demand for leaders to be good leaders. And, and there's a lot of responsibility on a frontline leader. Um, speaking of responsibility and, and challenging areas to focus on. I, I know you didn't mention this specifically, but we've talked about it before that we both many years ago worked in the call center space. And that's another one that could be really challenging for a number of reasons. You know, there's high turnover there. Um, oftentimes the employees are not very motivated. It's it's either a temporary job or one that, you know, they can't really get much better than, than that job. Um, and there's certain ongoing forever things. I, I can't tell you how many times I would see the same topics coming up every six months or every year, whether it be soft skills or negotiation or um, de-escalating or, or whatnot. 
Um, so we, we knew with your experience that you worked with in that space, how did you deal with uh, what can almost be like a content factory or, or just, you know, the, this thing where it feels like you have this gigantic mountain that, that you're never going to climb because it's, it's just always there. Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. I mean, so my background in the call center space is I was managing um, half a call center, you know, a team of like 40 odd people um, and doing that for a number of years. And I just, I'd fallen into kind of that space and I just realized, you know, this is not my, I don't think it's anyone's life's passion, but um, this is, I'm not passionate about it. I, I might move on. I kind of, then my boss convinced me to, to stay and, and just move into the training team. And, but I, from coming from that management background, I, I knew all the things I didn't like about getting new people and all the gaps in, in everything, their expectations, their skills. Um, so my job was to run a four week, uh, onboarding program for them, where they'd be in a, in a, in a classroom with me for four weeks and I'd stand there and present slides, do a few, you know, simulations and things like that. Um, so when I stepped into that role, I changed that completely. And this comes back to kind of the first thing we talked about is just having that mindset of, I just want to do a good job. I just want to achieve the outcome. So I didn't ask for permission. I didn't, and you know, I guess I was in a privileged position. I didn't care if I worked there or not. I just tried to quit. So I went in there and, and just went, oh, I'm just going to change it. I don't want people sitting in a classroom. Um, I know that people come and a lot of them quit straight away because they just it's, it's so scary to cold call people and trying to sell them things. And you've spent four weeks sitting in a classroom, being happy, playing training games, listening to someone talk, and you're all comfortable. And then you, you get on the phone and then you freak out. And then some people just go out to lunch and never come back. That was a very common occurrence. So from day one, um, I'll just get people getting them to do the tasks. And this is what I mean about training. You know, when we talk about training, in a workplace context, a lot of people think about someone in front of a whiteboard or a projector screen or a computer screen and just talking. But if we think about training in any other context, um, we have a much more realistic view. If we think about martial arts training, you know, if I want to be in the UFC, um, I'm not going to go and sit down with a coach and he's going to draw a lot of things on a whiteboard and talk to me for hours. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be sparring. I'm going to be grappling. I'm going to be punching people. If I had just sat there and listened to a guy for four weeks and gone out into a cage and try to fight someone, uh, I'd probably, you know, end up in hospital. I need to go out there, do things in real life, get that, that feedback myself, seeing what works and what doesn't work, having the coach talk to me about what works, what doesn't work. Same thing with any other type of training um, that you can think of out in the real world. I just use that because that's kind of like, a, like an extreme example of, um, you know, physical repercussions. But when we talk about training in the workplace, somehow it turns into information dumps. And that's not what training is. Training is exactly the same as that, that MMA example I gave. So in the call center environment, I got them to sit down with experienced people and listen to the calls. You could just plug in a headset and you could listen to their calls. That's a really good way of just interacting and, and starting to hear what it's like. If you're sitting with a good person, you're saying, hey, this is something possible. So the, the first time you actually sit down and do a phone call by yourself, you're not freaking out like this is some impossible task. So you're getting more comfortable there. They can just have that social learning element and start talking to people and finding out in between calls, like what works, what doesn't work, what do you like, what do you don't like? And then, you know, it, so it was, it was sales training. It was, um, tech, it was showing how to use all the very complicated uh, systems. It was how to provision products. It was also a lot of product training too. There was something like, you know, 30 odd different products they could sell. So it would also do things like get them to go to retail stores that sold phones and things like that and get them to talk to the salespeople there and pretend to be customers and watch how they sold. I would get them to, um, in terms of the technical side, I would just give them the resources. I would just say, here's a printout of what to do. Here's a job aid. Um, I would like you all to go and provision a mobile phone for this fake customer. I wouldn't teach them how to do it. And they would go through, they'd follow the instructions and they'd be able to do it at the end because they, they didn't think they didn't go in with this mindset of, oh my God, this is going to be hard. They didn't have a customer on the phone. They weren't freaking out. And so they were able to go ahead and do that. And I knew as a manager, one of the problems was always getting people come to me, asking me technical questions. And I'm like, it's on the intranet. Go look on the intranet. But it's much easier to pull aside the manager. So I was getting feedback from managers that my, my trainees were very self-sufficient because they had just developed that habit 
of being able to solve their own problems. So they came out, they weren't freaking out. They were comfortable having conversations about all these products because they were going off into stores. They were listening to calls. I would get them to buddy up with experienced people and jump on calls themselves. And then the, the experienced person could jump in. So I just made it very practical and just, just replicate it on the job tasks. And that's what training should be. So I didn't know anything about instructional design then. I just came from the, the background of being a stakeholder who knew what the requirements were. And so that's why I think it is so important for, for us to experience being someone who had been on the phone, someone who had been a manager. And so I was able to work that out. And then later on, as I got to understand kind of more about instructional design and more about creating training, um, it, was, it was very clear and easy to me to understand that, yeah, we just need to replicate what's on the job, get people an opportunity to practice, find ways to assess them so we can find what gaps they have and what they're good at and what they could improve. Um, it's it's that simple. It's that straightforward. And so if I didn't have that background, maybe I would have eight hours a day for four weeks and just talk at people and got the same results as all the other trainers. But um, luckily I had a bit more of a practical background before I went in there. So that was an extremely long uh, answer to your question, but it, it ties back to just setting realistic expectations, giving people that ability to practice because if we just wrap them up in cotton wool and just promise them the world and say everything's going to be fine and it's going to be great and sell this unrealistic image of, of what life's going to be like out on the job, then of course they're going to quit. They're going to turn over. So if they've got realistic expectations, they've got good habits, they're going to be fine. They're going to be set up for success and, and you'll find that much, much fewer people will actually, um, will actually leave. Yeah, it's interesting. No, I, I like that you shared that story because my very first official training role years ago was in doing something very similar, a trainer in a call center role for telecom. So very similar to what you did just halfway around the world. Um, be believe it or not, Matt, our training that I was given when I first became a trainer was eight weeks, like eight weeks in a classroom with very little actual job experience and very similar to what you did. I just started kind of going away from the curriculum as it was written and making people practice more and guess what? That produces better results. So I think you're right. It's what can they do over what they know? So good stuff. Um, well, you know, we have a, a little more time for a few more questions. I, I always get interested with folks in the industry because we know that there are a ton of um, myths and models and things that are just passed around. You'll maybe see them on social media and just stuff that won't die, like learning styles and um, the forgetting curve and all these different things that, you know, for whatever reason, they're just passed around. Are there any of those things that just like when you see them, they really irk you and you feel like you you have to step in and make sure this information's not passed around anymore? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've all believed most of those things at some point in our careers because they're, you know, I, I remember being in induction training and ha having to do tests to determine what our learning styles were. So you know, back when I was in my 20s, I believed in learning styles because I had a trainer say, we need to figure out your learning style and then that'll help you in this training. Um, so you can't get too um, annoyed with people for believing these things because everyone's, you know, going to learn at some point. It's when people get a bit closed-minded and just don't want to see any other options. That's a bit of a problem. To me, the the biggest thing is is the way we talk about learning is is scary to me in, in some ways on social media and in conferences and just in conversations, you know, you hear this from, from clients and stakeholders as well is there's this kind of simplification um, of learning. You see a lot of people, um, it comes back to what we talked about, that lack of nuance, stripping away nuance, talking about learning, like it's a product talking about, you know, oh, we need some learning um, built, you know, we need some learning designed. I think those are very, dangerous they're very subtle but very dangerous because when we take away all the special stuff from learning all the exciting stuff and we turn it into some sort of commodity some sort of product uh then all our conversations are transactional and then we can't have the type of training solutions we're talking about we can't have any complicated complex training initiatives developed it's more a case of I need that thing off the shelf or I need this thing that's custom built and it needs to look like this. It's not thinking about the end outcome. It's just viewing learning as this, this thing that needs to be made. And so that to me worries me. It separates work from learning, which I think is, is really wrong. Um, it's very 
trendy and common to kind of make these little images, these really simplified kind of visual representations of stuff or quotes on LinkedIn, you know, um, Jack Butcher style. Um, a lot of those kind of really simplify learning and, and don't really give learning its full credit. Um, and, and, and that just kind of worries me. Um, everyone's free to talk about learning in whatever ways they want to, but as an industry, we need to be very protective of the main terms we use. You know, I see this with the same with, you know, experience, everyone's talking about, you know, learning experiences and experience design and things like that. But in a lot of cases, a learning experience is just a rebranding for any learning course or, or the word learning is used because we want to avoid words like training and e-learning. And I think when we're not specific, then we become very general and it's just confusing. So if, I, if I'm talking to someone and they say, I need, I need four hours of learning built and what they're saying, they're trying to just avoid saying I need four hours of e-learning because it's not fashionable or whatever. Um, I think that's a problem. I think that's, that's a real problem because we're, we're distorting the view, the idea of what the main thing is that we deal with. Um, pretty much everyone has the word learning in their job title, um, yet we seem to misuse it all over the place. Yeah, that, that's a good call that, you know, the rebranding, I once worked on a team that called themselves learning team. And uh, the whole goal was just to not be called training, just to be different or not call themselves L&D. Um, so you're right that it, it seems like we do stick on these. But I like how you also mentioned that we have to be forgiving when people believe, you know, out outdated learning myths, so to speak, because, you know, we all started somewhere. Um, but let's, let's make sure we have these last couple of questions less on what learning or training is doing wrong. And maybe let's look towards what is exciting, what's cool in the future. And so um, I know there's a lot of change going on. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot exciting, but I, I have the, I see a lot of potential with things like VR and AR, especially in certain spaces, but are there any recent changes or things you're seeing on the horizon in the learning or training realm that are exciting you? Uh, there, hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's cause it, it's, it's different everywhere. I would like to see more, um, approaching, looking at, looking at different design fields at, at a more deeper level. So looking at, you know, experience design, service design, UX design, um, looking at those kind of disciplines and looking at the way they do design research, for instance, um, and thinking about how we integrate those, not copying, but how to integrate. And I think it's very important to understand kind of the, the, the reasons why that stuff exists, the reason why we have what we have today and, and working out kind of based on the foundations of, of our field, what we can pull in and how we need to adapt it as well. Same thing with like pulling from marketing and things like that. So I think there's huge amount of opportunities, huge amount of abilities. We can't just copy and paste it. We need to change it based on the, the specific context that we're going to use it in. Um, and then the same thing with, with technology. I mean, I don't know that aren't making their way for, for whatever reasons into, into the workplace and more suited for individuals, like especially in the kind of personal knowledge or the tools for thought space. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on there and that's in a very exciting space, but I don't see many people in learning and development kind of talking about that or, or using many of those tools. So I think that's something to, to pull in. That goes back to our conversation around knowledge management before as well. Um, I mean, kind of back to what I said before about doing good job. I mean, that's the thing that, that I'm trying to push with people is that we don't need to have any new, I'm not anti-innovation or anti-invention. Um, I, I want new stuff to happen. You know, I, I'm, I'm very progressive about this, but what I want people to understand is if we were somehow, someone waved a magic wand and said, you, you're not allowed to innovate. You're not allowed to make anything new. You're only allowed to use the terms we have now, all the skills and all the knowledge that has just been created before us and use those. We could still do a great job. And I think where, you know, a lot of people are always chasing new things instead of focusing on the basics. And it's like, you know, go back to kind of sports. Um, you know, if you're a bait, if you play baseball, I'm really going out of um, my comfort zone here, American sports, but say you, you, you know, we can go with you're, cricket you're not, if you'd like, oh, I know even less about cricket, but if you're, if you're trying to hit a, a ball with a bat, you're not changing your swing every week. What you're doing is you're, you're drilling and you are getting better at the basic 
swings. The same thing with pitching. You know, there's a couple of ways to throw a ball and there's probably one that you're really good at and you just get better and better at that and develop that skill. And I think it's the same for us in learning and development. Um, we need to focus on the basics. We need to develop those foundational skills and it can be tricky. You know, people jump around. I need to learn a little bit of this tool. I need to learn how to do graphic design. I need to learn how to do these things. And we we don't get that good solid foundational skills in analysis or being able to just just how to explain things properly you know yeah that's a good call and and i think that's true we don't want to throw everything out that has been done but one thing i i think is exciting is it feels like we are doing a better job of talking about things in a holistic fashion at least some of us in this industry than we used to be it's not just courses or learning to address it so maybe it's not as much about new technologies and new ways of doing things, but actually looking at solutions from a more well-rounded perspective that might be the new way or the future way of doing it. Um, interested to know, what are you doing or what have you done to develop yourself as far as either book certifications, people you're listening to, whatnot, you know, what have you done to get better at what you do? Um, yeah, so professionally, um, I think, you know, the main thing is do the work, but don't just do the work, reflect on it, figure out what, what you need to improve, get feedback, all that sort of stuff. I think it's one of the biggest ways you can develop yourself is just some really simple journaling, you know, as you're doing projects, this worked, this didn't work. Why didn't this work? Why am I, I'm having problem with this subject matter expert. How do I deal with this? I'm having problem with this stakeholder. I didn't get this sale. I got this sale. What worked? So learning from not just your failures, but your successes as well, and just constantly fine tuning. I think that's really important. Books, I think, are incredibly um, great and important. We all use social media for different things. I use it to learn. I use it to have discussions. They call in private and they can turn into friendships or discussions, collaborations. You know, LinkedIn is, is used kind of as a sales tool for a lot of people and people, you know, box themselves in for their personal brand. Or I, I think if you're yourself, you're talking about things you know, but also don't know. Um, you're putting opinions out there, you're asking questions, you'll learn a lot. And we are so, um, we're so lucky to be able to have this technology. 20 years ago, it would be hard to do this. There wouldn't be many people online and we wouldn't have been able to find other people in the same field and talk to them or people who have written a book we really like and ask them questions. So I think, yeah, using social media to learn is still underrated even though we all use social media so much i think it's underappreciated and, and underrated and definitely something i encourage people to to take advantage of if they want to um develop and get different perspectives i love it and you know you and i met on linkedin as well and it started with a connection and then it led to conversations and now we're having this conversation and i i agree with you that you know despite world craziness and the things that go on in the news i still think we're fortunate to live in the time that we we do because we have so much opportunity to connect and learn in ways that like, you know, I think about a hundred years ago and the richest people on earth didn't have learning opportunities like you and I do today. So, you know, people don't take advantage of those sometimes and they use social media as entertainment or distraction or whatnot, or they get sucked into the, the doom scrolling, so to speak. But you're right. There are so many good connections and so much good learning that can happen when you get involved. So Thank you for that. Um, I know I just had Heidi Kirby on recently. You and her worked together on the, the Useful Stuff uh, newsletter. And I know you've also been involved in doing a lot of different types of uh, mentoring and working with people who are newer into the industry. Um, do you want to share what you do in, in those in those areas of helping people who are new into the L&D realm? Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, mainly with, with Useful Stuff. So here's a plug, getusefulstuff.com is the website. Um, starting off as a newsletter, we're going to do a lot more with, um, with it as well, but it's in the name. I mean, basically what we want to do is we want to create a bunch of useful stuff and do a lot of useful stuff for learning and development. And that's for people who are new people that are, you know, have been in the industry for a couple of years and all the way up to people who are in management positions and been doing this for, for longer than me. Um, we want to create things to help, especially what I've talked about before, help them understand the different possibilities that are out there, the different, um, all the different training modalities, all the different non-learning interventions we can do, um, help them design um, better, help them do analysis better, but also too, just just make life a little bit easier as well. So we're creating some some 
tools for people to, you know, um, I won't give too much away, but just just to help their their day to day work a little bit easier too. So that's that's kind of the the thing that we're both working on. We both have a very um, passionate view of the industry, and it really goes back to what I said before about just doing a good job. Like I think even though we are so focused on skills and expertise as a field, uh, I still think a lot of it. We don't really talk about it when it comes to ourselves. It's it's like the mechanic with the broken car. Um, there's a lot of development, like people going off and doing their LinkedIn learning courses and things like that. But a lot of the development I see is not focused on um, kind of the core skills that we need in learning and development. So yeah, we're going to be doing a lot a lot around that. So if anyone would like to check that out, we have a, a newsletter that we're sending out every month, but um, there'll be more coming through our social channels as well soon. That's great. Yeah. So I, I know I put it on when I had Heidi on recently, I'll, I'll put it on again for your, your LinkedIn, uh, as well as a link to the newsletter. I think that's awesome sharing resources. Um, recently, I had a post on LinkedIn that was talking about how L&D professionals don't get enough development. And there were a lot of people that seemed to resonate with that post. And I know back when I was in more of an entry level L&D role, I didn't feel like I had a development path either. So I'm glad that that the two of you are working together to provide resources for people to help to get better at what they do. Um, other than those two things, your LinkedIn, your newsletter, is there anything else that you want to plug or you want, you want to include for the audience? Uh, no, no, I'm just, I'm just here to have a conversation. So yeah, if anyone's listening and they want to have a conversation about anything I've said, feel free to DM me, email me, get in touch via LinkedIn. And um... All right, Matt. Well, um, I ask every guest the same question and I'm interested to hear what you have to say, but what, what's one thing either in your personal life or your professional life that you've learned lately that has been a benefit to you? <sighs> lots of things, lots of things. I'm just trying to narrow it down. Um, I am learning a lot more about uh, my body and how I use my body at the moment um, through a few different avenues. Um, but I've, I've learned, uh, I'm, I've learned how much I just don't understand my own body and not aware of my own body. So I've been doing um, a, a few different, few different things with different coaches and teachers. Um, one of them uh, is Alexander technique, which is internal reflection of the body and getting better with my terrible posture and, and all those sort of things, but just understanding how much um, extra effort I'm using in doing really simple things like getting out of bed, getting up of chair with it. So that's been very eye opening to me. And I think that applies to, so many things in our lives and especially in the workplace as well, where we, we just assume we know about something because we're involved, but experience doesn't necessarily um, equal expertise. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, as I've gotten older, I've been a huge advocate of you know, learning about health, whether it be body or mind or whatnot. And, and that, that sounds like good stuff. So Matt, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for coming on the show. Same here. And everybody at home, we'll talk to you next time.